0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25 and 27, which um, I believe describes the significance of our choices. Like I said, we're going to be looking at Esau and Jacob's life and looking at this famous event through the lens of how our choices, our decisions, can impact our life permanently, but also the lives of many other people. Let's begin by looking at Genesis 25, verse 1. Or 19, sorry. (laughs) This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abram. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to give, have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. Turns out Rebekah had the same problem that Sarah had. She was unable to bear children. So miraculously, God enabled Rebekah to have uh, twins. But the two children struggled with each other out of, uh, other in, in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? She asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. And your older son will serve the younger son. So the Lord gives this prophecy about the outcome of these two individuals' lives. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she indeed had twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. It's pretty weird. Rebecca looks down as she's giving birth to the first son. She's like, oh my God, I'm giving birth to a Wookiee. <laughs> now, <clears throat> his name literally means hairy, And as it turns out, this uh, characterizes him for the rest of his life. He's... Um, Kind of a man's man, burly dude. The other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Interestingly, Jacob's name means literally grasps at his heel or deceiver. And we'll find out that he actually lives up to his name, that he was sort of a manipulator. Somebody who saw an angle in every situation, and found a way to get the upper hand. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So these brothers, these twins, obviously are very different individuals, Esau, he was kind of an outdoorsman, he loved hunting, he was probably a burly guy, smelled like full grain leather, and um, he was kind of a man's man, whereas we were told that Jacob, he was a quiet man, he spent most of his time among the tents, which, you know, in the ancient world, that's where a lot of the the women congregated, They, they cooked meals, and so he felt more comfortable Uh, with his mom, and then we we were told that there's some favoritism that forms in the family. Isaac, we're told, favored Esau because Isaac must have loved hunting. He loved the taste of wild game, so they became close. You know, they hung out, probably went to Cabela's together, (laughs) whereas Jacob spent most of his time with Rebekah. So it's interesting, and, you know, it's funny, when you look at uh, the later account of, of um, Jacob, we're given some description about him, that he's um, not super masculine, he's got really smooth skin, so he looked like a perpetual pubescent boy, prepubescent boy. But um, these guys were very different. Well, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick. Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why they also called him Edom, which just means red. So Jacob's, you know, sitting there making this incredible, this incredible uh, soup. And uh, Esau comes in from the, the field after probably a long hunt. But Jacob sees an opportunity here. He sees that his brother Esau is vulnerable. So Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Esau replied, look, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he negotiates. He says, if you want a bowl of soup, better hand over that birthright. Now, it's important for us to understand a little bit about ancient culture. In the ancient world, they followed the practice of primogeniture where they would give, the patriarch would give the entire inheritance over to the firstborn son. And they did this because they wanted to make sure that they could preserve the family's land and possessions. Because if you just simply divided it up among the children like inheritances today, eventually that inheritance will dwindle into nothing. And so the firstborn son would be given both the land and the possessions of the entire family, but he was also responsible to take care of the other siblings. Unlike today, you know, your siblings wouldn't move away once they grew up. They would usually stay with the family. So this birthright was very important. And in addition to that, we know that in the case of this birthright, there was special significance. Remember, God had promised Esau and Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would bless all of the nations through his descendant. So that was included in this birthright. Well, we're told that Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So it's interesting that this practice of swearing an oath and being able to transfer your birthright is something that was actually very unique to this period in history. We talked a couple weeks ago about how many skeptics of the Bible for hundreds of, over 100 years believe that the first five books of the Old Testament, including Genesis here, were written centuries later by many different authors who included their own spin on the first five books of the Old Testament and edited some stuff too. So, unlike what Genesis depicts, and really the first five books that Moses actually wrote this, they argue that this was a number of people who are writing as though they were Moses, hundreds of years later. And yet we see some of these details which have a ring of authenticity to them. We've been sort of tracking this throughout our study in Genesis. This practice here of selling or transferring your birthright was something that actually happened. And we know this because an archaeological dig near the Mesopotamian basin actually uncovered a number of cuneiform texts or tablets called the Nuzi tablets. And these are dated from about 150 B.C. And it's interesting because we can compare some of these cuneiform tablets, the things contained in them, with what we read in the book of Genesis and Exodus. And some of these things line up pretty well. One thing that's interesting is that we know Abraham actually was living in the Mesopotamian basin when God called him. Remember, he came from Ur. And so, uh, one of the texts actually confirmed that you could transfer your inheritance over to your sibling at a price. But that that sort of fell out um, out of custom at about 1000 BC. In one case, we find that One brother actually sold a portion of his inheritance to his brother for three goats. And so this, I guess, really just just points to how archaeology over and over again really corroborates the Old Testament and the Bible. Well, in verse 34, we're told, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. It's interesting, the narrative really builds with tension as they're dialoguing with one another, but as soon as they broker a deal, the events happen in rap- rapid succession. We're told that uh, Esau gulped some food, he, he ate or he drank, and then he got up and then he left. And so it's interesting How the author of Genesis, Moses, actually gives this comment that Esau despised his birthright. It's uh, very strange that he he would say that in light of this event. You know, after all, Jacob he manipulated Esau. Esau was sort of in a bad place. He was hungry. And so Jacob took advantage of his brother and his situation by stealing his birthright. And yet, when you look at what Esau did, it was far worse than what Jacob did. Because in addition to the land promise, and in addition to the many possessions that Isaac had, he was also forfeiting This incredible promise that God had given Abraham and Isaac to bless all of the nations through his descendants. It was a spiritual promise. So it wasn't something that he would get immediately. But he really discarded that by taking this bowl of stew. Well, the narrative picks back up in Genesis 27, starting in verse 1. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind... He called for Esau. So this is, you know, many years later. His older son said, my son. Yes, father. Esau replied, I'm an old man now, Isaac said, and I don't know when I'm going to die. Take your bow and a quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish. Bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. Notice that even though Isaac probably knew about this prophecy in Genesis 25, verse 23, he favored his son Esau so much that he insisted on giving him the birthright. But Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, Listen, I ho- overheard what your father said to Esau. Bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks, bring me two fine young goats, and I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so that he can eat it and bless you before he dies. So they hatched this plan, this conspiracy to steal Esau's birthright. Jacob says to Rebekah, but look, my brother Esau, he's a hairy man, and my skin is very smooth. What if my father touches me? He'll see that I'm trying to trick him, and then he'll curse me instead of blessing me. Good point. He points out to Rebekah, he said, have you ever noticed that when Esau takes off his shirt, it looks like he's still wearing a merino wool sweater? I mean, look at me, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, you know, I'm different from him. He's going to tell. Well, she had, she had a plan for that too. His mother replied, then let the curse fall on me, my son. Just do what I tell you. Go out and get the goats for me. And so Jacob went out, got the young goats for his mother, and Rebekah took, uh, took them and prepared a delicious meal just the way that Isaac liked it. Then she took Esau's favorite clothes, which were there in the house, and gave them to her younger son, Jacob. She covered his arms and the smooth part of his neck with the skin of a young goat. It's kind of weird. I mean, this gives you a better picture of what Esau must have looked like. He looked like a farm animal or something like that. (laughs) Then she gave Jacob the delicious meal, including freshly baked bread. So Jacob goes into Isaac's presence. My father, Jacob said. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now, it's sort of hard, as I think the reader, to to believe that this is actually going to work, right? I mean, this sounds crazy. But we have to keep in mind that at this point, Isaac was nearly blind and probably couldn't even see Jacob at all. And since he was very old, he must have been kind of senile. So maybe uh, they were taking advantage of, of this you know, advanced state that he was in where he just uh, wasn't all, all quite there. Isaac asked his son, how did you find, find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Lie. <laughs> or, you know, me and my mom conspired against you. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So he was suspicious. He sensed that maybe, you know, this is maybe Jacob trying to get one over on him. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are that of Esau. So he must have let in with his arms, you know, the goat, the goat arms. <laughs> but. He did not recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy like that of Esau's. So Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. So, I mean, you know, he's just, he senses that something's going on here, that that things aren't completely right. And so you can imagine Jacob, you know, trying to muster up his best James Earl Jones voice and said, I am, he replied. (laughs) Then he said, my son, bring some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. It smells just like ComFest. May God give you the heaven's dew and the earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine: may nations serve you, and peoples bow down to you, be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. That last part is obviously a portion of the Abrahamic covenant. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. His brother Esau came in from the hunt. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. Again, we see that the Newsy texts actually verify this practice that once the patriarch transferred the blessing over to the firstborn son, that that was binding, that it couldn't be taken back. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And so there you have the story of Esau and Jacob. Sometime later, Jacob leaves the household and runs to his uncle Laban's house to escape from Esau. And the brothers are separated for many, many years until later they're reunited Well, you know, it's interesting that the author tells us that he burst out with a loud and bitter cry because it seemed like when he decided to hand over his birthright for a bowl of soup that he did it in sort of a flippant manner. And yet now he seems really upset and grieved that this happened. The author of Hebrews offers us a little bit more commentary on this. In Hebrews 12, verse 16 and 17, the author says, Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. It's pretty harsh. The text says that he was rejected. Now, some Bible teachers would argue that at this point, God rejected Esau in that God actually decided that he would spend eternity away from him. But if you read the text carefully, it wasn't God who rejected Esau. Who was it? It was his father. The decision that Esau made was binding. And since Isaac blessed his brother Jacob, he couldn't turn that back. He couldn't go back on that promise that he had given. And so, really what we're faced here with a decision, a life-altering decision, that not only changed the course of Jacob and Esau's life, but also changed the course of eternity. You know, when we analyze Esau's decision, there are a number of things that we can see. You know, really it comes down to a decision between soup and a birthright. On the one hand, you have the soup, which is immediate. It's right there. Obviously, Esau was hungry, and he had a need that needed to be filled at that time. Whereas the birthright represented something that lay in the future. Something off in the distance. You know, with um, the soup, it brought temporary satisfaction. You know, as soon as Esau slurped up that soup and ate his bread, he just got up. That whole event probably took about four or five minutes if he was really hungry. And yet, that four or five minutes of his life changed everything. Just like many of the decisions that we can make that can be life-altering. Whereas the birthright was something that was eternal. You know, when you look at this decision, it changed, really, the eternal landscape. You know, the birthright that he was supposed to receive was one where God said and promised that he would bless all of the nations through his descendants. And that someday, the savior of the entire human race would come from his lineage. And so this was an incredible privilege that God was bestowing upon him, and he threw it away. All for what? For immediate gratification. You know, one day, we're probably going to be be able to meet these guys. You know, as a Bible believer, I actually believe in the afterlife. And it's not this amorphous thing. I believe that we're actually going to meet these individuals. You know, I'm sure that when we get a chance to interview Jacob and say, was it worth it? I'm sure he'd probably say, you know, I've done a lot of things wrong in my life. Even the way that I seized that birthright probably wasn't the way God wanted me to do it. And yet that represents the one shining moment in my life. It's really the greatest thing that I've ever done. There's also indication that we'll probably meet Esau as well, that he was actually a believer. Sometime later, when they get reunited, after years of separation, we're told that Esau actually calls upon the name of the Lord. And, you know, we're probably going to have an opportunity to interview him as well and ask him some questions. I'm sure if we asked him, so, was it worth it? If he could do it all over again, would you do it the same way? He'd probably say, you know what, I don't even remember what that soup tastes like. And uh, I'm certain that there will be some regret there. You know, when we look at the eternal, a lot of times it's something that is off in the distance, something that isn't tangible. And that's why it's so easy to just go for what's here right in front of me right now and to forfeit the things that God wants to give us that have eternal significance and value. Because, you know, one day, the things that this world values, getting accumulating as much money and possessions as you possibly can to fill your life with just experiences, none of that's really going to matter on the other side of eternity. The things that are really going to matter are the things that God says are important. And according to him, it's the spiritual influence that we have on people. You know, I think about this famous statement from Jim Elliott where he says, he is no fool who can give away what he cannot keep in order to gain which he can, that which he can never lose. And I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. That giving away the temporal resisting the immediate gratification in order to live for the things that are eternal are going to pay greater dividends when we finally meet God. You know, with the soup, it was physical, it was tangible. It was meeting a basic need. Whereas the birthright, it was spiritual in value. Something that wasn't very tangible. And, you know, that's one of the real difficult things, I think, for us as humans to really grasp. That we can live for something that we can't quite see. Something that lays further off into the future. We gravitate toward what's right here in front of us. What we think is going to make us happy. What we think will fulfill us. You know, on the one hand, you can kind of see where Esau was coming from. I mean, put yourself in his shoes, you know, he probably would say, you know, at the time I was starving, I was hungry. You know, Genesis 25 verse 32, he says, look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What good is this birthright to me? Now that would have been a good justification if it wasn't kind of deceitful. I mean, people who are starving and on the verge of death can barely carry on a conversation, let alone stand up and walk away after having a small meal. And so, it seems like he's he's really making an excuse. He's he's, uh, not being quite honest with himself. That it demonstrated the value he actually placed in this promise that God had given. Secondly, he might have said, I made this this decision under duress. I mean, I was hungry. I was tired. I'd been out hunting all day long. It's hot out there. You know, and plus I was wearing, you know, this fur coat. I wear it everywhere, right? And so he was probably, you know, feeling like if I had another chance at it, maybe I would have done things differently. And even though I might be sympathetic to him, it doesn't take away his responsibility. You know, a lot of times we like to justify things that we do. You know, justify taking what's right in front of us, going for immediate gratification. And yet, even though there might be extenuating circumstances surrounding that, it doesn't take away our free will. It doesn't take away our decision and our responsibility. He might have said, you know, my brother lied and manipulated to get my birthright. That was true. Jacob was certainly culpable in this situation, and yet it's clear where Jacob's values lie. He cared about the spiritual promises to some extent. At the very least, more than his brother Esau. He might have also said, you know, I didn't fully understand the impact of my decision. Had I known it would have resulted... In this, I would have never taken that deal. And, you know, a lot of times we make decisions in ignorance. But it's culpable ignorance. You know, had we thought about it in advance and we, had we counted the cost, when we were put in that situation, even though we might have been under duress, even though we might have been under extreme stress, if we had counted the cost uh, beforehand, then we could withstand different temptations that we face. You know, our choices have permanent consequences. That's really what happened here with Esau. He made a life-altering decision that really changed the kind of impact that he would have spiritually. Spiritually. And really, our choices can have permanent consequences as well. You know, you think about how a mad tyrant, you know, decides that he's going to push the button. That could impact millions of people's lives. Or think about, you know, a one-night stand. Five minutes of, you know, of pleasure can end up having a lifelong impact on us. And so we have to realize that our choices matter, that God gives us free will, and with that free will comes incredible responsibility. So the results of Esau's decision, he got some soup, right? Let's not forget that. And some bread. So he got something out of it. Uh, He was meeting a, a real need that he had, Right? Also, he never lost the family property or wealth. Jacob flees from Esau because he's afraid that he's going to die. And so Esau actually kept all of the property that Isaac had. As it turns out, later on when they meet together, you know, God prospered Jacob, but it was clear that Esau was very wealthy. And so. At least from a material standpoint, he really didn't didn't, uh, experience any difference in this. And yet, the spiritual difference or the spiritual impact that he had forfeited from this was incredible. He forfeited his role in God's plan. And you know, uh, to some of us that may not make much sense, but... For those of us who are intent upon serving God with all of our lives, we know the importance that this plays in our life. That we want more than anything for God to use us in other people's lives. Because we know that it's going to bring about spiritual rewards. That in the final analysis, the things that we do for God here are going to be the things that really matter. And finally, what he did was irreversible. Even though he, he wept, even though he grieved over this, it said that he was unable to, to receive that blessing because it was irreversible. And so some of our decisions can be life-altering. They may be irreversible in the effect that it has on us. And really, we're going to all face opportunities to opt out for our own bowl of soup, so to speak. You know, opportunities to pursue money and possessions. Even though it's going to take away from our impact serving God. That, you know, our desire to build an incredible career and be successful can actually crowd out our effectiveness in serving the Lord. You know, for some of us, it may be an opportunity that presents itself to gratify ourselves sexually because we're feeling lonely and depressed. And that can have a huge impact on our effectiveness. You know, that one moment of temptation, giving into that, could take away our opportunity to serve God in a real powerful way or diminish it to a large degree. I've known people who had a really good start in their spiritual lives. Were doing incredibly well, impacting tons of people, and then in a moment of time they just completely lost it. And when they came back, you know, their their impact for God had diminished because of their decision. And so let's draw some conclusions. I think the first thing is, there is no hunger so great that it could justify trading away God's will for your life. Nothing. And if you grasp the kind of impact, the kind of value God places on your effectiveness for Him, nothing in this world can offer anything in comparison and to trade that away, to forfeit that, would be a betrayal to ourselves. Secondly, decisions you make today may permanently change your life and on some level may be irreversible. You know, some of us, many of us are living, living with decisions that we've made that have impacted our lives and continue to impact us. And, you know, maybe we feel bad about that. Maybe we feel like in some way we have diminished our effectiveness for God because of what we've done. And that may be true to some extent. But one of the really great things about God is that he can actually redeem that. That he can use those terrible experiences, those bad decisions, and still continue to impact people through that. Thirdly, when we're confused about what to choose, God promises to keep us from serious trouble. So when I say that our decisions matter, our free will matters, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to carefully direct our lives. You know, God promises to lead us in his sovereignty, in his omniscience. So when we're confused about what decision to make, God will direct us if we are intent upon following his will. What I'm talking about is deciding to go against God's will, knowing that we could be forfeiting spiritual blessing in our lives. Fourth, even if we make the wrong choice, God can redeem us to a substantial degree. There are many people in this room who... uh, have made bad choices, and yet God continues to use them in a powerful way. And so that's one of the really great things about following God. You know, he says that he can use all things for good to those who love him, including your bad decisions, including choices that are irreversible. But really, there's only one choice that even God can't redeem, and that's the choice to refuse the forgiveness that he freely offers through Jesus Christ. This is what he says in John 3, verse 17 and 18. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged, for they are not believing in God's one and only son. The message of the Bible really boils down to God loves you, and he's provided a way of escape through his son, Jesus. But we have a limited amount of time to choose. Because once we die, we lose that opportunity to be able to receive the forgiveness that God offers through Christ. And simply saying, you know, I don't know what to think about this, so I'm just not going to decide or I'm not going to investigate this any further. According to this passage, according to God, is a decision in and of itself. And so, this really is is the most important decision that you can face if you don't know God. And it's not something you necessarily need to do tonight, though I would urge you to do that, but it's something that you should at least investigate further. Okay. Yes, Lord, it seems like this passage uh, serves as both a warning but also an encouragement to us that on the one hand, our choices um, can make an impact on our lives that we'll never be able to change. But on the other hand, that you are a God who can uh, redeem even our bad choices. I pray for those of us who uh, maybe have made bad choices recently and feel like, you know, that's it. Uh, I should just quit, or maybe I shouldn't pursue God anymore. I pray that uh, they would see that you can use even their bad decisions to... um, you know, further your cause and also to uh, impact people. And so I I pray that, um, you know, those individuals wouldn't give up and quit, but that they would uh, trust in you, trust that you're a God who is uh, greater than even our mistakes. And uh, we thank you that you are that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen.